I'd like you to turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians. We just had a team come back from Asia, and you know, we were praying for them steadily. Some of you were praying at home. Some of you came to our prayer gatherings and prayed uh, Monday nights, which, for your, just so you know, every Monday night, we have prayer. And I forgot to announce, I don't see Brother Tim. He's going to think I just left it out. Is he here? Well, you just let Brother Tim know. <laughs> We've got men's meeting tomorrow. And so that's exciting. Um, so men will be upstairs uh, getting into the Word, being encouraged. And uh, if, if any of you non-men, <laughs> if any of you women, uh, would like to come, we value and treasure your prayers. And there's still going to be a prayer meeting downstairs. And let me tell you, some of those times where those, those women get down there and get really praying in the basement, it's some of the most powerful times. And we can even hear it up here. So uh, I'd encourage you highly to be there. So we're going to get into the Word of God right now. And I want you to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. This is a verse that we've read before, we've studied before. And uh, we're going to read from a couple of locations and kind of build a foundation for what God has for us this morning. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, it says, Finally, brethren, pray for us, the us being Paul and his helpers, the us being the apostles that are going to all these weird regions all over the world, the, the us being uh, these guys that are, that are being the, the reaching arm of the church. But just because they're the reaching arm of the church doesn't mean they're the only arm, doesn't mean they're the, the only body part that's doing anything. When your hand reaches for something, when your hand builds something, your organs had a part to play in that, your muscles all over your body had a part to play with that. You don't say, you don't say well, uh, when someone says, you built a fine house, you don't say, I didn't build it, my hands built it. It's a silly thing to say, isn't it? If your heart stopped beating, your hands couldn't do anything. If your spine stopped working, your hands couldn't do anything. We understand that the body is the body. And when God, Jesus calls us the body, His body, the body of Christ, that's not uh, just something to make everybody feel better. That's, that's not something we say so that, so that those folks that just don't have any, have any important job just feel that they're doing something. No, everybody's job is important. And when we send a team out... Just as important as the mouth talking and the hands laying. Just as important as that is the rest of the body doing their part. And the hand can't reach, the mouth can't speak, unless the rest of the body is moving. Now there's been grace in different periods of time where, where it almost seemed like one man was doing everything. One missionary in the middle of nowhere. But that is not God's plan. It's not God's best. And in this season that we live in, it's unacceptable that you'd have somebody go and preach the gospel and not have a team supporting them by prayer, by giving, by love, all of these things. These are valuable things. So Paul says, finally, brethren, pray for us. And he's not doing this to make them feel better. Like, oh, well, I've got to give them a job to do or they don't feel like they're important. This is real. Pray for us. That the word of the Lord will spread rapidly. I've said this before, but it, it literally says that the word of the Lord will run. 
that the word of the Lord would run. Imagine what that looks like. How does that happen? It doesn't happen by Paul taking more meetings or getting on a faster horse. The word of the Lord running means when I go into a place and preach, even though there may be opposition, when you preach that the word of God hits people's hearts and those people go and they hit other hearts and it spreads rapidly. Now, he says, pray that this happens. Now, I believe that every scripture is inspired, God-breathed. So I don't believe anything is said just to make people feel better. I don't think anything is said just uh, for effect. I don't think anything is said just uh, to, to fill in the space. I believe everything that's said in these letters was vital, was important, was from the heart of God. That means that I believe that these prayers have a way bigger role in the word spreading than maybe we gave them credit for. Because I don't believe the Apostle Paul is just saying this so that everybody feels better. I believe he's saying this because if you don't pray, it won't have the same effect. He says, pray for us that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly and be glorified. When the word is glorified, it's shown on a big level. It's putting the word on center stage. It's it's revealing it, it's, it's uncovering it, yes, but it's also magnifying it. And when the word is glorified, that means you preach something and you see it in action right away. I mean, signs and wonders confirm the word of the Lord. That means that somebody's life is changed and it's evident to everybody that their life is changed. That means the word is preached in a city and you have things like happen in the book of uh, Acts in Acts chapter 19 to the city of Ephesus, who is a wicked and perverted city bound to the worship of a, of a goddess and the reliance on sorcery and witchcraft. And the word comes in and Paul starts preaching in a little theater because there's no synagogue will let, him ha- will let him speak there. So he preaches in a little Greek theater outside of the city in the middle of the day when no one else wants to sit there in the hot sun. <laughs> and the disciples hear the word of the Lord and because of this it says the word spread throughout all of Asia. Even though Paul was in one place, the word spread because people were hearing and spreading it. And then what happens? Well, in in Ephesus, what happens is that uh, there's such a shaking, there's such a move of God that it says extraordinary miracles are taking place. It says that uh, even though these miracles are attempted to be mimicked and copied, it doesn't work. And God is being glorified, so much so that these businessmen, these people who have relied on magic and sorcery all their lives, burn their books in the sight of everybody and say, and it comes to, to a very high amount of money burned in the street because they say, we don't want anything to do with that anymore. So much so that the op- opposing forces in the city are afraid that they're going to lose their livelihood the silversmiths, the people that made little idols for the tourists, and the not just the tourists, but the people who really believe that if I, if I buy a little Diana, if I buy a little Artemis from Ephesus, this will bless me in some way. So much so that those people that had that as their living said our livelihood will be gone because pretty soon if these guys keep preaching, no one will believe in this goddess Artemis. She will fall into disgrace. The victory of the gospel. That's what it means to be glorified. It means you don't just get people amening and clapping and shouting. It means that the word actually changes something. And all of this is tied 
to them pranks as just as it did with you. In the next verse, verse 2. And that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith, or not all have the faith. Do you hear what he's saying? Here are the things I want you to pray for. I want you to pray that the word would spread rapidly, it would run. I want you to pray that it be glorified. And I want you to pray that we would be rescued. The word rescued there also shows up in, in uh, some other translations as delivered. But it's a word that means to snatch violently or with force from danger. It, it could be translated to drag. That's the word we're talking about. That means that this is not you just rescuing your kids from nursery after the service. By just saying, okay, we're here to pick them up. And they go, thank God, mommy and daddy are here. And they've been rescued. Because that's not really that bad, is it? It's actually fun. <laughs> Some of you are going, what are they doing down there? Um, it's just not a light thing. It's not like somebody posting bail. Like I was rescued from jail because somebody paid bail. This is like you're in the middle of uh, the worst fight of your life and you're going to die and somebody grabs you by the collar and pulls you out. That's what it means to be rescued. This is what he's asking that they pray for. This isn't a light, you know, hey, I just wanted to throw it in at every Christmas card I send you uh, that we'd be rescued. This is real. He's fighting for his life and depending on the prayers of the church. Sometimes we exalt these apostles like Peter and Paul and, and even the, the celebrities of our day and say, well, they're super Christians. They're super preachers. They don't need my prayer. They're just relying on the Word of God and speaking the Word of God and nothing ever is going to harm them or hurt them. But you know what? They are relying. The Apostle Paul, one of the greatest preachers, one of the greatest ministers that ever, that ever spoke the Word of God is saying, I need you to pray that I would be rescued. I need you to pray that when I preach it actually does something. I need you to pray that people would run with the word, that it would spread and not just stay in one place. I need you to pray that I don't die. And that's not an idle thing that he's asking for. He's not asking it so that when he survives he can go, Oh, yeah, I'd like to thank you guys for praying. You all played a part in it, didn't you? This is real. This is life or death. Let's look in Romans for a minute. We're going to look at verse, uh, chapter 15. And verse 30. It says, Now I urge you, brethren. Now they're being urged, right? So that's... That's already a feeling of intensity right there. I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. Now, I don't know if we use this terminology too much now, but can you imagine uh, how much this ratchets up the, the importance of what he's about to say? Because he says, I urge you, and I'm not just urging you from, from me. I'm not just urging you because I feel it's important. He says, I urge you, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. Now those are strong things, right? If I came to you and said, I am asking you a favor, I'm not asking you on my behalf, I'm asking you by, by the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Spirit, that's important. 
to strive together with me. Now think about what it means to strive. To strive means to fight. To strive means to push. To strive means there's something pushing the other way. When you're striving, it's not just like you're just trying harder. When you're striving, there's an opposing force, something pushing against, and you push back. He says, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. This was not a one-way relationship, guys. This is not the Apostle Paul who's the preacher to that church and they need to hear everything he has to say. Then he goes away and gives something away to another church. This is a two-way relationship. I preach to you, but I need you to pray for me. And I'm not just saying, please pray for me. I'm saying, I urge you by the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Spirit to strive together with me. Let me tell you what I picture here. I picture that a, the Apostle Paul is pushing against something and something pushing back hard. And he realizes that what's pushing against him is so strong that he needs the brothers and sisters to push back with him. When Jesus said that if two or three agree touching anything in my name, they'll have it. He didn't just say that so that we would you know, have an excuse to get together and hold hands. There is a power in agreement. And it doesn't change once you hit a certain spiritual level and you don't need anybody anymore. When the Bible says one could put a thousand to flight, two ten thousand. That doesn't change just because somebody became a super Christian. There are no super Christians in the body of Christ that can operate outside of the body. There's no hand that becomes so strong that it doesn't need the rest of the body to move. There's no mouth that can be so skilled, so tongue, a tongue that can be so eloquent that it doesn't need the rest of the body to push. There will never be. Because what Jesus did was He didn't say, I'm making you my bodies. I'm making you my little bodies walking around. He said, I'm making you my body. That you would be one, even as I and, the, I and the Father are one. What did He say? I don't do anything unless I do it with the Father. Then He says, so, I mean, that's the oneness that He has with the Father. I don't do anything unless He tells me to do it. Then He says, I want you guys to be one, just like I'm one with the Father. In other words, I don't do anything without the body. Now that doesn't mean the body's always going to agree. It doesn't mean you wait around for everybody in the church to agree with you. Because not everybody will get to that point as fast as they need to get there. But it does mean there are no lone rangers. There are no cowboys here that, that can... Uh, there are cowboys, but there are no <laughs> old western cowboys that just you know, get on a horse and say, it's just me and my six-shooter and that's all I need. We've got the body of Christ. And you've got to realize that when some minister who's gone off to the Sudan or gone off to Asia or gone off you know, to Russia or to the Ukraine, when this happens, they're not saying pray for me so that you feel like you're a part of it. They're saying pray for me because their very life may depend on it. Even bigger than that, so that the Word would be glorified. And I know that's hard to grasp, but I've been on the other side of the world and realized that more than my own life, I want the gospel to be spread. Now, I want to live. But even more important than my life 
is the fact that the word would be glorified in this city. The word would be glorified in this nation. The word would be glorified in this region, in this continent. My dad said to me when I was 15, I think, 15 or 16. You've heard of it. You've heard me say it before probably. He said, Jonathan, if you want to be a missionary, you've got to be willing and ready to, at any time to do one of three things. To sing, to preach, or to die. He said, I don't believe you're going to die. <laughs> but now that you're with me, I don't have to sing, he said. And so that was a great comfort to me. <laughs> but I learned real quick from him and just from experience that we depended on the prayers of the people back home. And it's not a coincidence that when it was Wednesday night in Lloydminster, all of a sudden there were burdens and things that broke where we were. That's because Wednesday night people got together and they started praying for us. Now, that was pretty cool. I think it would be even more cool if we prayed more often together. We'd see even more than that. But thank God for people praying on Wednesday night. And we knew the difference. We could feel it. And he says, I urge you by our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm urging you by the love of the Spirit to pray for us. To pray that we would be rescued. Listen to this. Here's what he says. To strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Verse 31. That I may be rescued. That same word. That forcibly dragged out, snatched out of the flame rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company now the God of peace be with you all Amen huge thought here that, that everything hinges on you guys striving with me praying with me and do you think now when you hear the word striving does that sound like a, a, a nice little rhyme that you say before you eat? <laughs> does, it, does, it, does it sound like a little sing-song prayer that we, say, that we just, you know, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray, you know all that junk? No, this, this sounds like you're getting on your knees and doing some battle. And sometimes you have to do some battle. Now you realize that the power is in Jesus. The power is in Him. He's the one doing the work. He's working through us. He's praying through us, right? Romans 8 says when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit prays through us. Praying out the perfect will of God. This is not you having to try harder in your prayer. But this is you committing to praying. To letting God work through you. And putting everything aside for a moment. We live in a society that is so addicted to entertainment that we don't know how to be still. Because there's a gadget everywhere that can turn on. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but inwardly raise your hand. How many of you have experienced the wonderful thrill of just being bored and surfing the net with no goal in mind? And then you find the stupidest things and you waste the most time. When you're not going after anything, you don't have a task, you're just simply browsing and so you, you try your old favorites you start with your news sites or, or whatever you're into YouTube and you start going from oh here's the great thing when I watch one video they tell me other videos I might like and pretty soon after three hours you're just getting started you've seen all the cats you can handle you've watched people fall from the roof 
You've watched babies do funny things. And you've let three hours of your life go by that you can't get back. I'm not against watching those fun videos. I'm not against any of that. But we've got to recultivate the ability to be still. And seek and inquire of the Lord and spend time in His presence. There was a period of my life where I realized that the only time I spent with God, where I, it wasn't the only time I spent with God, but the times I, I heard most things I ever heard from God was either, either in the shower or driving. I did a lot of driving, so it was easy. And I realized that those were the times I was forced to be still and do nothing else. When you're taking a shower, you can't really multitask. When you're driving, you shouldn't multitask. So those were the times I ended up hearing things from God. God, why do you speak to me in the shower? God, why do you speak to me in the car? Because, dude, that's the only time you listen. Because Jesus calls me dude sometimes. Because that was the only time I was listening. You say, I listen all the time. I listen in the grocery store. Ah, but there was the only time where there wasn't anything else on my mind. There was the only time where, where I was not battling to, to fight to think on one thing that I was focused. So what's the response to that? Well, to begin to take time outside of the shower and the car where you set time aside for you and Jesus. Or for you, your spouse and Jesus. For you, your best friend and Jesus. And there's such a powerful thing, you know. Sometimes we get embarrassed there's, there's a barrier we will all come to, friends. And you'll know it when you see it in your own relationships. There's a barrier, and it's the, it's the um, I don't know what to call it. It's a, it's a barrier in conversation where you will be in men's Bible study or you'll be in GCW or you'll be in a church service and you'll talk about the scripture and you'll talk about the word like there's no tomorrow. you love it. You have such good conversations and then you go out to eat with one person and there's this barrier. There's a wall where you feel you can't get past the surface and you feel almost embarrassed, almost like you're talking about private things with them when you bring up God. And there's a wonderful moment in these relationships when you start to talk about Jesus. You find two hours later you're still talking about Jesus. And uh, every conversation after that, it's easy. You could talk about Jesus right away. But it's a barrier you've got to break in every relationship you have. Because there's, there's this wall and you feel like, you know, this is like, kind of like me talking about uh, intimate stuff. I don't, I don't want to talk about Jesus with just anybody. But you know... With our brothers and sisters, that is the very lifeblood of our relationships. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. There is such a power in agreement, not just in prayer, but in sharing the word in conversation. You get on the same page, you begin to talk about things, and when, you, when some issue comes up, you can pray about it. I grew up with friends that were friends at church and then outside of church we awkwardly talked about everything else but God then thank God something happened something happened in our hearts and our souls that changed and we realized the only thing that really matters is Jesus the only thing that really matters is his kingdom and you know what we still have fun talking about all these other things but God is the thread woven throughout all of them 
I remember, you know, Brent's on the front row. I remember when we started becoming friends. And man, we would spend hours and hours and hours talking about Jesus. And we'd, we'd get on to snowboarding, and then God was in it. And all of a sudden, we're back to, we're back to God. And then, you know, you'd get, on, you'd get on music, and then God's in it. And I mean, you never, we never talked about anything that was separate from God. You might talk about fun things. You might talk about West Edmonton Mall. But somehow, God's involved in West Edmonton Mall. Because truly, in Him we live and move and have our being. If you're doing anything without the presence of God or without the knowledge of His presence, I should say, then you're missing out on the good life. And when you open up your, your, your conversation to begin to talk about these things, there's power in it. And I say all that to say this, that there will be a time in your relationships where you have to choose, is this somebody I can pray with or is it somebody that I can't? And if I can't pray with them, I wonder how much of a relationship this is. I realize we have unbelieving friends and family and we pray for them. But now if you have believing friends that you're not comfortable praying with, there's something broken and God can heal it. I'm not saying that to get on to you, to beat you up. I'm saying there's hope for these relationships. Hey, if you can't pray with your spouse, if you feel awkward, God can help you with that. Because there is a power to praying with your spouse. And that doesn't mean you have to spend all your time praying with your spouse. This, this time you pray alone. But there is such a power in agreement. And this is what he says, strive together with me. I'm urging you to do it. Fight with me. Fight for me. Because here's what's going to happen if you strive together with me. The gospel the word is going to run the gospel will be glorified and we're going to be rescued from perverse and evil men those are pretty big reasons to pray <laughs> now let's look at a couple examples of that in the book of Acts I'm going to bring up a couple of very familiar examples to you and hopefully you'll recognize them and you'll, you'll recognize your place that these aren't just stories from a better time in the church Ah, this, this was what the church was supposed to be like, but we've wandered so far, we'll never get back there. You know what? From my understanding of the Scripture, the church in these last days is meant to be even bigger than the church in the book of Acts, meant to be more powerful and stronger because we are in the last days. So take heart. These aren't superhumans that you can't, you can't compare yourself to. We're going to start with Paul in Acts chapter 14. As you know, there were some pretty cool miracles that happened in Lystra. There was a man who uh, was lame from birth. Paul stopped in the middle of his message, said, get up, be healed. The man was healed. But then something happened. He had some groupies that weren't good groupies. You know, it's, it's a hard thing to go to preach in a place where people don't like you and they wish you weren't there. It's even harder when they follow you around everywhere. That's what happened here. They followed him around. He had groupies that everywhere he'd go, he'd, they'd find him and they'd stir up riots against him. Then it says in verse 19 of chapter 14, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, now, 
The New American Standard says, while the disciples stood around him. Several other translations say it a little bit different. For instance, the English Standard Version says, when the disciples gathered around him. Now, I'm going to go a little bit off book here. And I want you to understand that you can draw your own opinion here. This, there are things that are said very clearly in the scriptures and there's things that are implied. And so we're getting into implication zone here. So you, you receive this from, with your own spirit. You can, you can say, I don't know about that or I do know about that. But it seems odd to me that there seems to be a moment of time that he gets up. And it's not... It's not just after, they leave, after the Jews leave him alone, after the people leave him alone, pretend, you know, supposing him to be dead. There's a moment he gets up fully well, fully healed, fully alive. And it's when the disciples gather around him. Now, why do I think that's important? Well, I believe that disciples are different than just followers or listeners. I believe disciples are people that take the word and apply it. I believe disciples are people that actually, uh, you know, are like remakes, uh, are, are like duplicates of Jesus. I believe that disciples, when they hear the word, are, become changed by that word. So here's why I think this is important. Because I don't believe any disciples that had heard the word, these aren't just uh, friends, these aren't just acquaintances, these are disciples. These are people that heard the word, believed it, and have become different. Are these the kind of people that will stand around and just stare at you while you lie on the ground? What would you do? I've been around you guys. I've been around you guys long enough to know there's not too many people in this room that if somebody fell down, looked like they were dead, you wouldn't just go, somebody call the hospital. This wouldn't happen. If we were decorating a couple Saturdays ago and somebody fell off that ladder and stopped moving, I guarantee, because I've seen it happen, in 10 seconds, they would be surrounded by fervently praying believers. Now, do you think the disciples that had been trained up under Paul's ministry would have just stood there? Doesn't seem likely, does it? When the disciples gathered around him, what do you suppose they were doing? Most likely. And when they did, he got up. Now, you can just say, well, God got him up. Absolutely God did. But I believe there's a, there's, a, there's a reason the scripture mentions those disciples. And I believe it's because they gathered around him and began to pray what they had been taught, began to pray like they had been, they had been preached to and it entered their heart and it changed them. And I believe it was partially because of those men and women that Paul got up and he walked back into the city. A couple chapters earlier, we find that Herod, in chapter 12, Herod has killed James. James uh, was a very important member of the church. He was a leader. Um, and Herod picks him out and kills him. And most of Jerusalem is really happy about this because the Christians aren't very popular at that time. So when he kills James, Herod's points in the polls go up. He realizes this is a crowd pleaser. I'm going to do this again. Can you imagine a war living in a world where killing James gets people feeling about the same way as killing Osama bin Laden? That's kind of how they felt. 
Finally, they're doing something about this issue. So Herod says, well, who's next in line? Who's, who's the next big gun? Peter. Takes him in and intends to do the same with him. Here's what it says. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. That was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. It's Herod's intention to do exactly to Peter what he had done to James. As you know, I'm, I'm somebody that likes, I, I believe that the specific wording in the scripture is, is specific for a reason many times. And I think it's very valuable. We know what the word but means, don't we? Here's a statement, and when I add but to it, I reverse the statement. I give you another factor that stands against this statement. That person was educated, but they got real stupid real fast. I was feeling good, but then I ate some bad meat. I don't feel so good anymore. Whatever you say after that, but kind of changes everything. And here's what he says. Herod kept him in prison, but the church was praying fervently. Actually, it says, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, See, I mean, like, angels sometimes act like little brothers. You know, he didn't wake him up gently. He struck him in the side and woke him up saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but though thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. Wow. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me. He rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went into the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. You know, it's, thank God, God, God is merciful. He answers our prayers even when we don't pray perfectly, right? Because here they are praying, but not expecting that he's going to show up. It's a cool thing to pray and let the expectations be defined by God rather than how you think it's going to happen. Just say, Lord, rescue him. I don't know how you're going to do it, but do it. And then expect that God's going to do it. 
And when Peter shows up, they don't even believe it. And when they do see him, they're amazed. But the important thing is he's standing on the other side. He's on the other side and in, in verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. This is a different James, obviously. And when the day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Next few verses, we find out that he actually dies. He gets what's coming to him. But look at this. Here's a man who's being guarded by really well-trained troops. And these are troops that know should this man escape, we will be executed. This is like being guarded by the Navy SEALs, except knowing, except you have these Navy SEALs that know that their head's going to get chopped off if they let you go. Do you think they're just going to fall asleep? Do you think they're just going to, you know, give you some space? He's being guarded by crack troops who are threatened with death if he gets away. But the church was praying fervently, was making fervent prayer to God for him. And that's the thing that made all the difference. You know, the Bible does not say in this verse, but Peter was loved by God more than James. Doesn't say, but Peter was a man of faith. Doesn't say, but Peter had a mission in life. It says, but the church was praying. And to me, that's the big factor. That's the thing that changed everything. We all know that Peter is a superstar in the Christian world. He's a superstar in the Bible, isn't he? But even Peter had to be prayed for to be delivered. We blame a lot of things on God. I have study Bibles that go, we don't know why. That God killed James and let Peter go. No, we don't know why James died. I don't know why James died. But I do know why Peter didn't die. Because it says the church was praying. It doesn't say, but it was God's will for Peter to live and James to die. It says, but the church was praying. It doesn't say the church was praying too hard for James. And it could have been that they got comfortable. Do you know how easy it is to get comfortable and start to believe that somebody is so spiritual that they never need you? Because we've all thought it, haven't we? That preacher is so spiritual... That sister is so spiritual. Oh boy, I want them praying for me. I want them to lay their hands on me. But oh God, I'm not, I'm not important enough. I'm not special enough to ever pray for them. I mean, they don't need my prayer. I mean, they're walking with the Lord. And they may have thought that about James. One of the sons of thunder. And when he got arrested, well, we'll see what happens. Then he's executed. And it lit a fire underneath the church. Because the next time someone gets arrested, they don't just sit back and wait. They get together and pray. And it says that they, I mean, think about it. Peter gets set free in the middle of the night. He goes immediately to the church, right? What are they doing? In the middle of the night. They're not sleeping. They're praying. When Peter gets to the door, they're there. Well, it could have been very early morning. Either way, it's not a time that we all like to get together and pray. But they did it. 
Because they realize there's power in our prayer. Our prayer can change something. What I want us to be able to do, friends, is to be able to let go of the idea, to let go of the fantasy that there are super Christians in our midst that don't need our prayer. But the mouth needs the lungs. The hands need the rest of the body. That every part of the body needs the rest of the body. There are no celebrities in this body that don't need your help, that don't need your prayer. And so when we say, let's pray for this person, we're praying that the gospel would be glorified, the word would be glorified, it would run, that it would, be, that it would spread rapidly, and that they'd be rescued, if need be, from the hands of evil men. This could be the difference between life and death. This could be the difference between a nation remaining the same and a nation being transformed. When we agree to pray, for instance, for Mark Davy, who's preaching in the Sudan, do you realize what could change if that nation was transformed? A predominantly Islamic nation bound by militant mixture of rebellion and religion. What could happen if Jesus had control of that nation? What could happen if the word was glorified and spread rapidly? And you may say, well, as long as Brother Mark preaches, that's what's going to happen. And I say, as long as he preaches, here's the Lord, and we pray. That's what will happen. Because Paul says, pray this so that this would happen. Your prayers... If the Apostle Paul needed prayer, if Peter needed prayer, if Jesus asked his disciples to pray for him in the garden, we need to pray. And guys, I am not saying this like somebody who's getting on to you because you guys pray. I'm saying this so you know how valuable you are, how important you are. Don't let the enemy lie to you and sell you short and say, well, we pray to have something to do, but it'd probably be the same whether we prayed or didn't. No, it wouldn't. It would not be the same. You know, I've said this plenty of times before, but prayer is boring when you don't think anything's happening. That's super boring. That's how the Pharisees prayed. Jesus said they pray with vain repetition, thinking they'd be heard because of their abundance of words. They just did it because it was tradition. To them... Prayer time became like their own version of American Idol, where they just, you know, tried to outpray each other. I've got a fancy prayer today. I'm going to use my prayer accent for it. <clears throat> where they thought God would hear them, the more fancy their prayer was. Jesus didn't say, Jesus said, here's, here's what you need to do when you pray knock. And keep knocking, and the door will be open. Seek, and keep seeking, and you're going to find. This is what He's promised to us. And it's a promise that we can believe and we can keep. And when you know your prayer is powerful, when you know it's big, you get excited about praying. You think the guy that's sitting on the button that launches the missiles in the Pentagon, do you think that guy's bored when, when, when it comes time, when battle, when battle takes place, and this is the guy that gets to push the button? Do you think he's like, oh, I'm just so bored. What a dumb job, this stupid button. Press, press, press. It doesn't do anything. He's not bored. 
Prayer is so powerful that you want to be directed in your prayer. You want to be focused in your prayer. You want to be led by the Spirit in your prayer. I, we, we talked about this uh, last week. But it's like a loaded gun. When you realize how powerful your prayer is, it is like a loaded gun. And you don't just point it anywhere, and you don't just shoot it off anywhere. You ask the Lord, where do I aim, and where do I fire? And you do it. You don't just say, you don't just say well, I got a gun. Guys, look, I got a gun. Pow, 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 pow. No, you, you say, Lord, where do I point? Where should we fire? And the more of us that agree together, the more powerful that prayer becomes. For a fervent prayer of a righteous man does much, has much effect. And I think in these last days, it's been the enemy's plan to undersell the prayers of the church, of the saints, and to make it seem like it's just an excuse for us to get together, pat ourselves on the back, to turn it into a competition about who prays better. But it is not that. We live in a day and age where the glory of the Lord is going to spread. And the gospel is going to be preached in places that have never received the gospel before. And it's never been more important than now that we gather together, we join hands, and we pray. If those super apostles needed it, we need it.